Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, episode 178. So we have two stories today, both involving Iran and religious fundamentalism. First up, it seems that Iranian media outlets have added to the bounty on Salman Rushdie's head. The author's been living with a death threat hanging over him since Ayatollah Khomeini, Iran's supreme leader at the time, ordered a fatwa calling for his assassination back in 1989. Some of you youngins out there who aren't familiar with the story might be wondering just what did Rushdie do to make this old sour-faced cleric want to see him dead so badly? Well, back in 1988, Rushdie, a British author of Kashmiri Indian descent, wrote a controversial book entitled The Satanic Verses. I can remember hearing that title on the news as a kid and being taken aback by how dark and ominous it sounded, The Satanic Verses. The book borrows its title from a theological point of contention that can be traced back to the early days of Islam. The Satanic Verses, also known as the Garanik Incident, refers to a controversial Islamic story in which Muhammad is temporarily led astray by the devil. According to the narrative, while trying to win over potential converts, Satan inspired the prophet to utter verses which promoted the worship of three pagan goddesses. Have ye thought upon Al-Lat and Al-Uzzah, and Manat, the third, the other, these are the exalted Garanik, whose intercession is hoped for. Garanik is a somewhat mysterious word open to interpretation, but it's thought to have been a plural form of a word for crane. Thusly, it seems that within the controversial verses, the three goddesses are being compared to three birds. So it's easy to see why fundamentalist Muslims, or Muslims in general, might find the Garanik incident or the Satanic verses problematic. Not only do they portray Muhammad as promoting paganism, but they also depict him as being led astray by Satan. And perhaps they're seen as promulgating the troubling or heretical idea that some of the Quran might be the result of demonic suggestion rather than divine inspiration. So that's why Khomeini wanted Rushdie dead, because he wrote a book which offended his religious sensibilities, and there may have been political motivations as well. And actually, I'm going to play a clip from Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, in which he talks about all of this, and of course, in a much more eloquent fashion than I am capable of. So copyright considerations be damned, here we go, and I should mention that Hitch and Rushdie were close friends. And be forewarned, the clip is about five minutes long, but hey, who doesn't like listening to Hitch? On February the 14th, 1989, my friend Salman Rushdie was hit by a simultaneous death sentence and life sentence for the crime of writing a work of fiction. To be more precise, the theocratic head of a foreign state, the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, publicly offered money in his own name to suborn the murder of a novelist who was a citizen of another country. Those who were encouraged to carry out this bribed assassination scheme, which extended to all those involved in the publication of the Satanic Verses, were offered not just the cold cash, but also a free ticket to paradise. It's impossible to imagine a greater affront to every value of free expression. The Ayatollah had not read, and probably could not read, and in any case forbade everyone else to read, the novel. 
but he succeeded in igniting ugly demonstrations among Muslims in Britain as well as across the world, where crowds burned the book and screamed for the author to be fed to the flames as well. This episode, partly horrifying and partly grotesque, of course had its origins in the material or real world. The Ayatollah, having flung away hundreds of thousands of young Iranian lives in an attempt to prolong the war which Saddam Hussein had started, and thereby to turn it into a victory for his own reactionary theology, had recently been forced to acknowledge reality and to agree to the United Nations ceasefire resolution that he had sworn he would drink poison before signing. He was in need, in other words, of an issue. A group of reactionary Muslims in South Africa, who sat in the puppet parliament of the apartheid regime, had announced that if Mr. Rushdie attended a book fair in their country, he would be killed. A fundamentalist group in Pakistan had shed blood on the streets. Khomeini had to prove that he could not be outdone by anybody. As it happens, there are some statements allegedly made by the Prophet Muhammad which are difficult to reconcile with Muslim teaching. Quranic scholars had attempted to square this circle by suggesting that in these instances the Prophet was accidentally taking dictation from Satan instead of from God. This ruse, which would not have disgraced the most sinuous school of medieval Christian apologetics, provided an excellent opportunity for a novelist to explore the relationship between holy writ and literature. But the literal mind does not understand the ironic mind and sees it always as a source of danger. Moreover, Rushdie had been brought up as a Muslim and had an understanding of the Quran, which meant in effect that he was an apostate. And apostasy, according to the Quran, is punishable by death. There is no right to change religion, and all religious states have always insisted on harsh penalties for those who try it. A number of serious attempts were made to kill Rushdie by religious death squads supported from Iranian embassies. His Italian and Japanese translators were criminally assaulted, apparently in one case in the absurd belief that the translator might know his whereabouts, and one of them was savagely mutilated as he lay dying. His Norwegian publisher was shot in the back several times with a high-velocity rifle, and left for dead in the snow, but astonishingly survived. One might have thought that such arrogant state-sponsored homicide, directed at a lonely and peaceful individual who pursued a life devoted to language, would have called forth a general condemnation. But such was not the case. In considered statements, the Vatican, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel all took a stand in sympathy with the Ayatollah. So did the Cardinal Archbishop of New York and many other lesser religious figures. While they usually managed a few words in which to deplore the resort to violence, all these men stated that the main problem raised by the publication of the Satanic Verses was not murder by mercenaries, but blasphemy. Some public figures not in holy orders, such as the Marxist writer John Berger, the Tory historian Hugh Trevor Roper, and the doyen of espionage authors John Le Carré, also pronounced that Rushdie was the author of his own troubles, and had brought them on himself by offending a great monotheistic religion. There seemed nothing fantastic to these people in the British police having to defend an Indian-born ex-Muslim citizen from a concerted campaign to take his life in the name of God. Sheltered as my own life normally is, I had a taste of this serial situation when Mr. Rushdie came to Washington over the Thanksgiving weekend of 1993, in order to keep an appointment with President Clinton, and stayed for a night or two in my apartment. An enormous and forbidding security operation was necessary to bring this about, and when the visit was over, I was asked to pay a visit to the Department of State. 
There I was informed by a senior official that believable chatter had been intercepted, expressing the intention of revenge on me and on my family. I was advised to change my address and my telephone number, which seemed an unlikely way of avoiding reprisal. However, it did put me on notice of what I already knew. It is not possible for me to say, well, you pursue your Shiite dream of a hidden imam, and I pursue my study of Thomas Paine and George Orwell, and the world is big enough for both of us. The true believer cannot rest until the whole world bows the knee. All right, any excuse to listen to Hitch. God is Not Great is still one of my all-time favorite books. And to me, almost as disturbing as the fatwa itself is the victim-blaming that took place, high-ranking Christian leaders wagging their fingers at Rushdie for daring to insult religion instead of speaking out against the barbarism of calling for the assassination of someone whose only crime is writing a somewhat provocative book. It reminds me of the current Pope's remarks in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo attack. So there's the backstory. Now I'll read from an article about how Iranian news media outlets have actually added to the value of the bounty on Rushdie's head. And I believe I found this article through the Huffington Post, uh, but they're linking to the original Reuters article, and it looks like it was written by Pariza Hafezi, I think it is, and Kara Reuters. Iranian state-run media outlets have added 600,000 to a bounty for the killing of British author Salman Rushdie, imposed in 1989 over the publishing of his book The Satanic Verses. The leader of Iran's 1979 Islamic Revolution, the late Ayatollah Khomeini, issued a fatwa or religious edict that called on Muslims to kill the author after his book was condemned as blasphemous, forcing him into years of hiding. The bounty imposed in 1989 on British author Salman Rushdie for publishing his book, The Satanic Verses, has been increased by 600,000. And uh, that's a bit redundant, but the uh, article repeats itself. Iranian hardliners say Khomeini's decree is irrevocable and eternal after his death. A wealthy Iranian religious organization offered a $2.7 million reward to anyone carrying out the fatwa, and in 2012 it increased the amount to $3.3 million. The semi-official Fars news agency published a list of 40 news outlets adding to the pot. Fars itself earmarked 30,000. And here's a quote. These media outlets have set the $600,000 bounty on the 27th anniversary of the historical fatwa to show it is still alive. Mansour Amiri, organizer of a digital technology exhibition at which the money was announced this month, told Reuters, Amiri is the head of the Suraj Cyberspace Organization, which is affiliated to the Basij, I think, volunteer mil- militia. Friend and listener of the show, Tim Danaher, offered to uh, handle pronunciations for me. I wonder if he's any good at Farsi and Arabic. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, here we go. Hopefully, uh, I'm not butchering things too badly. Amiri is the head of the Suraj Cyberspace Organization, which is affiliated to the, that sounds weird, affiliated to instead of with, the Basij Volunteer Militia, allied to the elite revolutionary guard established to defend the values of the revolution. The head of the militia visited the exhibition, Farsi said. Rushdie's agent said he had no comment. Iran's foreign ministry was not immediately available to comment. And I guess this next bit is coming from the Associated Press. After 27 years, this book still sparks death threats and bounties. In 1998, Iran's pro-reform government of President 
Mohammed Katami, distanced itself from the fatwa, saying the threat against Rushdie was over after he had lived in hiding for nine years. The book's Japanese translator was stabbed to death in 1991, and other people involved in publishing it were attacked. But Khomeini's successor as supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, I think it is, said in 2005 that the fatwa was still valid and three hardline clerics called on followers to kill Rushdie. With the landmark nuclear deal with world powers sealed last year, followed by lifting of international sanctions, pragmatist president Hassan Rouhani is trying to end Iran's isolation with the West. However, despite the government's willingness for wider engagement, hardline allies of Khamenei fear that opening up to the West will eventually weaken their influence and the legitimacy of the Islamic Revolution. The deal has intensified Iran's political infighting ahead of two crucial elections on Friday. A hardline watchdog body, the Guardian Council, has disqualified thousands of Rouhani allies, barring them from entering the race for parliament and assembly of experts, which has power to appoint the supreme leader. So there you have it, and now I'll say what no one should have to say. Don't kill people over religion. Putting the brakes on a living, breathing human being because they don't share your views on religion or because they dare to criticize your beliefs is wicked and barbaric. We don't know if God's real. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you doubt he's real like I do. Uh, I'll be fair, gender neutral, he, she, or it. But so we don't know if God's real, but we know people are real. So don't go around killing them over man-made superstitious nonsense. And now for a similar story, and I want to thank my friend, the Mad Humanist of the Mad Humanist podcast fame for bringing this story to my attention. Members of an Iranian heavy metal band, ironically named Confess, are possibly facing execution for blasphemy. I'll read a bit from the Sydney Morning Herald, and the story is by Philippa Hawker. Iranian metal band Confess reportedly facing execution, and this is dated February 22nd. Members of an Iranian metal band called Confess have been arrested and may face execution, it is claimed. Trev McKendry of Metal Nation Radio posted a message on the Metal Nation News website from a friend of the band saying that two band members were facing charges including blasphemy and quote-unquote playing heavy metal owning an independent record label, and for communicating with foreign radio stations. Band members Nikan, quote-unquote, Sayanor, Kosravi, and Arash, quote-unquote, Chemical, Ilkhani, were said to be arrested on November 2nd, 2015, and held in solitary confinement until February 5th. They are reportedly awaiting trial dates. And uh, pardon me if my voice is kind of breaking up or sounding extra uh, scratchy or stuffy. I stopped getting allergy shots about a half a year ago because my allergist thought after getting them for years, I might be all right now. Uh, But apparently not. Like my brother and sister, after they ceased, eventually their allergies, you know, started to resurface. And uh, apparently such is the case with myself. Uh, So please bear with me. Uh, Anyway, back to the story. According to McKendry's source, they have been charged with blasphemy and quote-unquote advertising against the system, forming and running an illegal band and record label in the quote-unquote satanic metal and rock music style. 
writing anti-religious, atheist, political, and anarchist lyrics and giving interview to foreign radio stations. I wonder, I wonder if that should be giving interviews. If found guilty of certain charges, it is said they face between six months and six years jail. If they are found guilty of blasphemy, they face the possibility of execution. Confess was founded in Tehran four years ago. According to McHendry, they are a quote-unquote talented thrash band that risked it all to pursue their hopes and dreams of one day being able to leave their land and share their music slash stories with the world. On their Facebook page, their influences are listed as Lamb of God, Slayer, Slipknot, Trivium, Devil Driver, and Chimera. Not Chimera, but Chimera, I think. Just before the arrest, the band released their second album, In Pursuit of Dreams, on the opposite records label founded by Kasravi. Song titles include To Hell Rahan, I'm Your God Now, and New World Order. Their music can still be heard to SoundCloud and Bandcamp. I wonder if that's supposed to be their music can still be heard on SoundCloud and Bandcamp. So, yet another disturbing example of people being threatened with death for expressing themselves creatively. As someone with uh, humanist values and who greatly values artistic freedom, it's sickening. It makes my blood boil. There's a change.org petition that I plan on signing, uh, but in reality, I don't know how much good an online petition will do. Maybe if it gets enough attention, it may help persuade the Iranian government to show some mercy because they don't want the negative attention, but who knows? Fingers crossed. But that's it for this week, and before I go, I'd like to give another shout-out to my friends in Voice of Doom and give them a couple of plugs. So the Voice of Doom Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash Voice of Doom. And the site for their record label is Peric Victory Recordings, all one word, dot com. And I don't think their new record is on iTunes yet, but some of their older stuff is, I believe. Yeah, they have an album entitled Three. That's on iTunes. And I think the singer was impressed that I recognized that it was an image of Pazuzu on the uh, cover. And for some reason, I can't find their Bandcamp link right now, but they are on Bandcamp as well. And while I'm speaking about Bandcamp, uh, another shout out to uh, Divinitus, another talented musical group. Uh, technically, I don't know if Divinitus is uh, one person, kind of like Nine Inch Nails. Um, but either way... Uh, a, a shout out to Heath from Divinitus once again. And look at me rubbing shoulders with all these uh, musical acts. Awesome. And now to shamelessly plug the podcast. You guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, go to Podbean to check out the archives going back to the very first episode. Uh, you can write a review or subscribe through iTunes. Uh, you can check out the YouTube channel, which you might be doing right now, if you happen to be watching the video version. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can do so using the PayPal widget on the Podbean page. There's all the alliteration. Or by going to patreon.com slash doubt and pledging as little as a dollar a month. And uh, thanks to the uh, singer from Voice of Doom for becoming a Patreon supporter. I, I appreciate it very much. And uh, I also think some of the Voice of Doom crew liked the Weekend Out Facebook page, so I really appreciate that too. All right, with all that being said, uh, thanks again for listening, and until next week. Uh...